Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Uh, I remember Liam Nielsen was in the kitchen of my first restaurant. He, he came in the kitchen with his plate and he said to me, I don't know, this sauce, it tastes so complex and rich, but I know it's not. So, t- how do you do this? And I said to him that I realized that when I was there the first, you know, on the farm, that story of me pulling the peach down with my mother, and she put my hand on another one, pushed it up, and when she took my hand down, she said, that's the peach to eat, at seven years old. Growing up on a farm and learning the difference between something from only three days later, the values, better the taste, and then just constantly looking for those gifts from Mother Nature. So let's say you find one, and I always say I take that vegetable, fruit, whatever, for a very long walk. We have an intimate relationship. We do all kinds of testing together. All kinds of techniques and this and that until I find, wow, that's the best way. So when I put another one with it, which I've already done the same walk with, they're gonna work together. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. These are some of the things that I've written about in my latest book, Eat to Be Illness, which has now been released in the USA. You can pick up a copy of it in all good box stores, including Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and Amazon Online, the links of which will be down below. Now, as part of my trip to launch the book in the US, I caught up with Michelin-starred chef. David Boulay and let me tell you about why this man is so special. In 1987, Chef David Boulay opened his own restaurant Boulay in Tribeca and among many accolades, he was awarded Best Chef in America by the Herald Tribune, TripAdvisor's Traveller's Choice Awards, the Best Restaurant in the United States and number 14 in the world. It was also the number one restaurant in New York City for many, many years. In addition to that, he's also one of the most health-conscious chefs in the world with a strong focus on research, particularly for diners with health concerns. Chef Boulet's approach has won him a Lifetime Achievement Award from Dr. Peter Green, the director of the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from Dr. Barry Smith, president of the Rogerson Institute and professor of clinical surgery at Will Cornell Medical College. Now, there is a lot of evidence-based safe dietary and lifestyle change that we as practitioners can be confidently discussing with our patients. But in order to translate that, we need people like 
David Belay because he translates that into wonderful dishes that effortlessly nourish people's lives and can change healthcare for good. After studying in France at the Sabon, he did classic and nouvelle French cuisine with chefs like Jean Robuchon and Freddy Giraudet, who were pivotal to his approach to cooking. Unlike many people who think he pivoted into health conscious cooking, he has always been one to appreciate the medicinal effects of eating well. Chef Boulet shut down his flagship restaurant in 2017 to focus on learning more about Japanese cuisine and how they approach food and medicine. And that's going to come out in this conversation that we had today. I learned so much about different oils, different ingredients, things I've never heard of. And you can just tell he's so interested in this subject, so much so he has an immense passion for constantly learning new things. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm going to summarize some of the things that we said at the end and make sure you check out the podcast notes because I'm going to link to a whole bunch of things, including his three-part series on Japanese cuisine that was aired on Japanese TV a couple of years ago. On to the podcast. I have a French passport. I grew up in the States. I started cooking with my family. Um, when they came, they had money, so they bought land, yeah. a big farm, and they bought a house right on Jamestown, uh-huh. which is right next to Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been in that area, but. Yeah. So we run out the house, and the water is right there, like, across the street. But I started with her, but when I went to the Sorbonne, I'd already been working restaurants for nine years or yeah. so. Yeah. So I didn't start at the Sorbonne, and we didn't study food at the Sorbonne. Mm-hmm. We were studying art. Yeah. And I already had um, two and a half years of business degree, and I wanted to take off, so I w- went to study something else, and I traveled around, that's how I ended up in, in France, and then in France I wanted to stay longer as a student, because I was also studying other things, mm-hmm. and I started to work in bistros, yes. so I worked in a bistro that um, was famous for all the chefs, and it was basically there where I met, um, I worked at Gaston and then at Le Note was Verger's chef, mm-hmm. and then I went down to work with him in 77, and they moved me all around for yeah. several years to so many different three-star restaurants, yeah. including Switzerland with Freddy Jardet, yeah. Bocuse, Ebelin, Robochon, Verger, and uh, we went out and opened Boulet in 87, and it's been ever since. When I opened in uh, Tribeca, um, I, I never cooked the food that I couldn't digest, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times I couldn't eat in these fat French classic American restaurants, particularly in New York, it's too hard to digest. Too much butter, too much cream, too much flour, too much roux. Everything was not for digestion. It was for stable food with small staff mm-hmm. and structuring high volume. So the logistics alone had to have that kind of, uh, you know, organization of, of to be able to survive through a long service and do volume without so many hands. Mm-hmm. Nouvelle Cuisine, which started in the late 60s, early 70s. Sometimes as many cooks in the kitchen as were chairs in the dining room. So in New York, you had three or four people in the kitchen doing 200 covers, you know, so it was a different structure. Um, so that was part of it. When I opened Montrachet in 85, in Boulogne in 87, we introduced the tasting menu. There was Barry Wine that did a few tasting menu, but he had more of a choice. So Nouvelle Cuisine, was all about degustation. 
and they learned that from the Japanese. Because before they had, you had prefix, even the top houses, and you'd pick one in each department, but you didn't have a degustation menu. So the French were going in the 60s and 70s to Japan, and they learned a lot about uh, kaiseki. Certain kind of vegetables beginning to accelerate enzymes in your stomach, like crudite would be doing the same thing. And then how to warm the stomach with a broth, and then how to have your first protein with something fermented. And this series of kaiseki is only those rules, and you stay in re season. Now you can do anything you want outside of that, but you have to follow digestion, physiology, or bioavailability. So that means you have to roll uh, at different points, heating the body, you're gonna have, for instance, your, um, your simmer dish, you're gonna have your, your tempura or fry. After that, it's always the vinegar dish. And then you may have another warm dish or vegetable dish without protein, and then you're gonna have probably some form of carbohydrates, probably a rice dish or some soba, but not so much. Soba is independent, as you know. Have you been to Japan? I have. All right, so Japan, yeah, that's right, you said that. So you don't have a menu like in Europe, you know? It's not, uh, it's not the menu that has everything on it. You go for soba, you go for this, go for that, go for the other thing. So kaiseki is more engineered around, uh, of course, the season, in and out of the wild, and digestion. And the goal is to give as much or more energy than when the client arrived. So, you know, samurai had a lot of influence on that. The emperor style of eating, um, these periods of evolution were, um, you know, they weren't, uh, they were feasts, but they were more uh, articulated for health uh, very often. Kuzu, do you know what that is? Kuzu. Yeah, yeah, it's a particular type of carbohydrate that's quite rich in fiber, is that correct? Yeah, 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 it's a vine, uh -huh. not so much a root, so it goes in and out of the ground. Oh, okay. So it has a lot to do with uh, stabilizing sugar. Uh -huh. We wire people up and we'll do that. Um, we used to bring them in from London, the constant glucose monitor. Yeah, CGMs, yeah. yeah, well now we can get them, but you have yeah. to have a prescription. You can buy it over the counter in yes, London. Yeah. So we would put eight people and I would stabilize the sugar using kuzu in every dish. And no one could believe it. Yeah. Usually when I start to work with a doctor, um, usually they had a health crisis themselves yeah. or someone in their family, but something compelled them to think out of the box. Um, I didn't go through any of that. I didn't change my cuisine. Mm. When I opened in the 80s in, in uh, downtown, it was always the kind of cuisine that customers were coming three, four, five times a week and they were bringing in their family and their doctors, nutritionists, and they'd all want to know what the hell is going on here. He's eating this fancy restaurant. He's losing weight. Mm -hmm. Colleagues would say he's much nicer at work. Uh, everybody was like, what, what, how can this possibly be? Because, you know, America still thinks that, uh, particularly then, that if it tastes really good, it must be evil, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, we hear that every single night. Yeah. Um, Lydia last week, I just told my husband we're going to walk to 82nd Street in, in West End because uh, I eat half this much food and I'm falling asleep. And he said, yeah, you're usually sleeping on my shoulder in a taxi. She said, I always eat twice or more than twice as much food and I have more energy. Lady here on Saturday night, yeah. she had a long menu. We, we gave her a few more things. She said, you know, I just feel like 
I'm satiated, but I'm not stuffed, and I'm a little bit hungry still. So all that is, it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. It didn't happen uh, 33 years of practicing food. In the 80s and 90s was to give digestion, uh -huh. right? So if you digest your food, you're probably going to come back. So we put many vegetables on the market in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the fingling potato with Rick Bishop, uh, the Crohn's. We put also the, the corkscrew. Okay. It tastes like artichokes. You yeah. have them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we put the rocket on, uh -huh. the cone cabbage, like Bavarian cabbage. It tastes like lettuce. Uh, like a, we call it spring-pointed cabbage. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, well, yeah. All those were here. I had to bring seeds in. I had wow. to pay probably 10 or 15 things that we did um, before the mid-90s. Yeah. So um, that was a big part of how food was functioning. And then I remember, I remember in 85 or 86, it was a big Wall Street Journal story, and they were asking me, why was I writing everything organic in my menu? And I told her, well, you know, I grew up this way. We had a farm. We waited until it was time to eat things. We didn't, uh, we didn't buy off the farm for years and years. Um, these people that I'm buying from, I told her, are following the same kind of principles. Uh, and also when I cook things, particularly chlorophyll, I see that the color maintains at higher temperatures. I can do things that if I'm making my juices, because I was obsessed with juices in the mid-80s, uh, the chlorophyll uh, would change really quickly. It would have oxidation to a friend of mine, Henry Mann, up at uh, Yale University, told me how to use ascorbic acid. So I started putting buffered vitamin C. And then with that, I could maintain color, taste, and shelf life. There was a little bit earlier than this whole new movement, which yeah. always makes me nervous because most of the time it's going to get all messed up. And well, this know. is one of the things I think because I think one of the reasons why we're seeing a lot more doctors uh, move into this wellness space or appreciation for food as medicine is because of personal experience. That was to answer your question. That was yeah, kind of like personal my background. They were compelled by their own health. Exactly. Marx was the same. Uh, a whole bunch of people I know in the UK are the same. My own experience was when I overcame atrial fibrillation when I was a junior doctor. And I think this whole um, chef doctor series here is mm -hmm. super admirable, and I can understand why you get a whole bunch of doctors wanting to join in this because they're waiting list now. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They have to get them drunk. One of the yeah, one of the things that I found most compelling, one of the sentences I picked out from the recent documentary you did in Japan. Which science can't oh, cook. Did you watch all that? I watched it. Yeah, it? I watched all of it. Wow, because yeah. only three hours here, but in Japan it was no three it was segments. Three half-hour segments. Yeah, over there was three hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, the 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 lines was science can't cook. I think it was from yeah. your colleague uh, who's yeah. the uh, culinary um, uh, lead over there. Oh yeah, Mr. Suji. Yes, Mr. Who Suji. Who I just showed you. The yes, photo. you showed me his photos. That yeah. was twenty-four years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, I just think that's a very powerful statement because it's the same way doctors can't cook either. We, we don't have that sort of level of culinary knowledge. And in order to translate what we know about nutrition and lifestyle medicine, we rely on the, um, the experts in that, which are people like yourselves. So last year we did a symposium on fermented foods here. Yeah. We were doing the soja and we did uh, we had a few people from Vermont, they wrote a uh, couple books, from, they're Indian, mm -hmm. and they did a beautiful presentation. We had the biochemist from Nagano. We had Elad, who's been working on um, 
it from Israel, working on uh, microbiome for 12 years with Dr. Holly, the lab at Cornell. Holly won the Nobel Prize. So the laboratory there, he was a USDA scientist. The laboratory is run by USDA, the Fortified American Food System. And I met Ray Glenn about 13 years ago, so we've been working together. We did collaboration there. And then we had a woman biologist, Japanese biologist MD, I think, who we presented Nato. Look at Nato. It's in Africa for a thousand years, and Chinese for maybe a little bit more. Uh, I don't think people know that Nato is in Africa as well. They yeah, always sure. associate with the Japanese yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, but well, no one goes, no one really goes deep enough, you know. Yeah. Um, even like you would say, you have to have uh, a professional um, cook. Often they do things that are healthy, but they don't know why they do them. So if you're not asking constant questions, it's harder for you to get on the health wagon because you, you have to deconstruct, which was what I did in the 80s, so that I could rebuild. What would that be like? Um, well, there's a museum in Brooklyn right now about Chinese cuisine, and I had to do a demo over there because I had to do it for the University of Connecticut because we were working for the alumni. Two years ago, they had given me an honorary PhD, and I had the commencement speaker, and I became friends with a lot of the the deans who were like just, just looking for somebody to, to work with because they, they, they have a real struggle finding people that are deep involved in food. And so um, I was getting ready and I heard that uh, a group went through, well they went through, and through the museum, museum and the last wall were like 40 or 50 circles all pointing to a center. and. You know, they were saying like, well, this one and that one and this one makes this and this one now. So the building blocks, the building blocks is my cooking since the 80s. And I would take things like asparagus soup, I would take the skin, juice it, put some ascorbic acid, vitamin C, it would stay beautiful. Take the head, blanch that, make the stem a stock and the middle one, middle part of it actually make a soup with onions and garlic, some herbs. But then at the last minute, we would put in the chlorophyll from the skin, and the smell was amazing. Yeah. And on the way to the room, the dining room smelled like asparagus. So now if we would have made that earlier, just cooking it all the way, would have lost some color, wouldn't have the energy, the sweetness would have gone out. So a lot of these components you see in different cuisines, but they're more designed for health, hygiene, and preservation. So. Almost every country around the equator has some co compound uh, mass. Call it miso, mole, curry paste, whatever. And these were there, they, they have their own physiology. They can kill antibodies. They make, uh, I mean, uh, bacteria. They build their own antibodies and kill invading bacteria, like nuca. Uh, I don't know if you studied nuca, but do you know what nuca is? Nuka is the rice bran hull, okay. and they ferment it. And in Nagasaki, there's a university, and they have it registered 200 years old. And in Brestrick, we had a state-registered Nuka that was brought in from the chef's family that was registered 100 years old. So that would be another where it's an invading bacteria. The, the mass does analysis and will terminate the invading bacteria, pretty much like you. So your function. So a lot of the, the, the cultures that we see, uh, to answer your question, uh, they weren't um, 
their approach wasn't to medicate or supplement. Their approach was to get the body to do what it's designed to do. Yeah. This kind of cuisine, your question is, uh, you know, the synergies, uh, both current and ancestral, they've always been uh, where the complexity of Mother Nature, you're not going to figure it out. Yeah. So, uh, properly designed food, like, like this could be something that everybody's running after. They heard it, it's great. So they're going to have a lot of that. And they're not going to understand compounds or other things that we need so we can have bioavailability. And they could even build antibodies because they eat too much of the same food. And they're eating it without the, the mass of other, um, call it whatever you want, you know, call it down to atoms if you want, but there are certain components that would give the transmission of these benefits. And this is the madness that I see constantly today, that um, they jump on something, they eat too much of something that they think is going to be the answer for health, yeah. they don't understand histo uh, historically. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like New York when they went nuts over Japanese food. The wasabi yeah. was in every puree, anything that wasn't cooked had ponzo on it. Yeah. Nobody understood anything about what they were doing. Yeah. Uh, or even now, this non-gluten, there was uh, one of the top chefs uh, in the country who sent a bag of flour to everybody. And this was three years ago, I told my receiving guy, quick, run after, put it in the truck, get it out of here. Because it had like tapioca, rice flour, potato starch, corn starch, and a whole list of other things that were there. So we're not going to hurt them with gluten, but we're going to kill them with glycemic index. Exactly, so yeah. the carbohydrate mass was ridiculous, off the charts. So that would be an example of the sort of the dark side of everything. People jump on the bandwagon, and that's why I say the business machine uh, always complicates things. And when the popularity, as you mentioned, of this Chef and Doctor series, you know, I'm hoping that it actually would calm down. Because, you know, when the business machine starts to get involved, they don't look at the same values looking at the bottom line. Exactly. And there's a big part of that. Well, this is what I think is very important to address because it, as humans, we're very binary, I find. And if we find something, uh, a little snippet of information saying turmeric is good for this, everyone's going to go for the curcumin supplementation or vitamin E is good for this, then we're just going to take the supplement. And without sure. really getting to the root cause of why people are ill in the first place, right. you mentioned autoimmune issues. I think there's a lot of people just thinking it's all to do with cleanliness, or it's all to do with the microbiota, it's all to do with pollution or toxins. In reality, it's a combination of all these Absolutely. It's a circle with hundreds of pies Absolutely. cut out. There's no, and, and also that circle on the diet is only one side. If you took a circle you want to have unbreakable health, put a line through the middle, you're probably going to have it split in half. 50% is going to be lifestyle, 50% yeah. is going to be diet. I really think bioavailability and digestion are the two key uh, words to sort of stimulate curiosity or these are topics that are so complex right now. And, and I think you, you look back at traditional foods that you were just talking about, every single culture appears to have some form of fermented food as their base. Like every, every culture I look at, whether it be Japanese, Indian, European descent, um, sure. even uh, Latin America, always yeah. have these sort of bases. Um, and I think that's something um, that has been lost through homogeneity, for irradiation, through um, foods that are overly processed. And that's essentially why we're seeing, uh, in part, one of the reasons why we see uh, poor gut health. I mean, something yeah, I see sure. all the time in clinic, gut issues is a big, big issue. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like we said, if this is a certain healthy ingredient, it has to be designed 
you know we call them recipes you know but I'm amazed uh, so long ago with uh, people like Escoffier, Russia, China of course, India where uh, I was eating Indian lunch three days ago with our owner of our Indian restaurant in Tribeca and we were really getting into uh, he made a new dish for me because he likes to cook too and it was shockingly good and I felt great uh, after I ate it yeah. but we were talking about you know the the benefits of the, the yogurt and the bacteria mm. and how that supplies and then with the spice kingdom and the different regions of India and if you go back further when we weren't transporting food we, we weren't even able to get from here to there very fast food is more departmentalized um, for instance uh, Jacques, the, my baker, you know, we, he's got a book that we're going to get into English. You know, you're talking about migration of foods. It has a huge effect up until uh, migration and execution has a huge effect on what we're eating today until World War II. After World War II, the efficiency of feeding so many people, uh, particularly in this country, the business machine did it so well, and they ran with it, and it's been so many concessions. But, you know, if you look at the Mayflower ship, which they launched in 1623, which uh, they're having a, a replica oh, right. uh, launching in Mystic, Connecticut next weekend. Oh, right. okay. uh, it's pretty much the same, and they don't have yeah. blueprints. So they went by how many barrels could they ship, how many people could they ship. They held a measurement, because uh, the Mayflower, there were several of them, and they were basically, um, you know, uh, distributors and their merchant ships carrying cargo. So with all that information, uh, contracts and things, they knew the size of the ship and the blueprints. But when it came to Cape Cod and to Plymouth, uh, the wheat that came along with it, the soft wheat, uh, it rotted on the way over. So only the hard wheat survived. So one of the reasons why we have such hard wheat is started since then. And it was so prolific, it grows so fast, because yeah. it's stronger wheat. You know, if you look at many of these kinds of, of survivals, yeah. you know, they're, they nurture different in nature, and they have a different result in health. So, and if you look at even uh, a soft wheat and a hard wheat, the Egyptian discovery of apultra, these produce two different kinds of soluble fiber. So we want more, um, soluble fiber and less insoluble fiber when you're making bread. Well, this is why I think complex medicine actually starts with complex food and the improvement in the complexity of your food is going back to our ancestral ways of preparing right, them. Right. So whether that be fermentation, whether it be looking at the whole plant rather than stripping it and refining it away, so you're actually getting that complex cataclysm of different phytochemicals and, chemi right. and, and components when you consume an artichoke or taro or purple potato. Uh, pre prebiotics is exactly. so important. Yeah. And I remember I did one, uh, he put me in his book uh, on the early uh, group of uh, chef and doctors and he really didn't know where the prebiotics were in food. Mm -hmm. And I felt so bad because it was a big part of his presentation. And you know, I did a whole uh, prebi prebiotic uh, menu. You know, in Arizona not long ago, I was at a seed exchange for the Indian uh, uh, population in Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and flows right down into Mexico City and beyond. And they, they have a federal funded multi-country, not doing so well anymore funds, but 
they are collecting seeds going back 4,000 years. Now they're in Indian range, uh, reservations that no industrial farming has ever touched. Yes, I think I I've heard about this. Oh, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. brought bags of white beans back and I would uh, cook them and I hear the people like, because it's nice, yeah, yeah. watch the eyebrows move up and it's nice to hear, wow, honey, these beans, I've had any beans like yeah. this before. Yeah. And so when eating something like the putra flower, which was discovered in the, in the tomb, uh, an Egyptian, and then the French government were the ones that pollinated. When eating these kind of foods, you can almost feel the time. Yes. So how do we get back to that? This is the river people and the desert people in Arizona. When you eat that, it's as a chef, you're like, oh, this is unbelievable. Yeah. So what is it? Is it the ground? Is it the hummus in the ground? Is it the bacteria? Is it the environment? I mean, you don't know. And when we were up in Japan, there a lot of stuff that didn't go in in NHK fascinating things like um, the benefits of the sea urchin yeah. with the uh, focosantum it's a compound with binds with lipids and they they're planning on developing a, a you know a, a totally natural non-synthetic uh, looks like a brown aspirin from sea urchin yeah. there's an incredible amount of awareness and transparency in terms of what we should be doing but it goes back to the point of who's making the food taste great. There was a company that wanted me to work with them, huge. And I told them, we met many times, I told them, listen, if you can tell me what I do when I cook food, I think I might have mentioned this to Mark, are we contributing to high nutritional density where we can have bioavailability? Or are we maybe doing things in cooking, temperature, oxidation, acid, pH, whatever, uh, that are uh, damaging? Or are we not putting the right foods together? And then if you can tell me, that's one. I said, if you can tell me what my customers need to eat as individuals, I'm signing right up yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. And I say, or if you can help me find those people that can help guide me yes. uh, where they were doing things going back thousands of years. You know, there was one doctor that closed, it was beautiful. And he had four kinds of doctors. And it was the first number one, number two, number three, number four. And the first one was um, a doctor who was trying to uh, treat a patient, uh, whatever his approach. Number two is a doctor that is uh, discovering uh, a disease. Number three is the doctor uh, that's treating disease. And number four is the doctor that prevents disease. And on the bottom, in Chinese characters yeah. and in English, yeah. it was 4,250 years ago. I think those same four doctors are outside right now. Yeah. Yeah. But most of the time, as we talked about earlier, a lot of, uh, we need science, we need science. My uncles in France, you know, they're so obsessed with holistic, but they always say, you know, when it's time to take your penicillin, you better take your penicillin. And not long ago, I had a spider from a hike up in New England that bit my foot. I couldn't figure out what was going on. It swelled up. It was like so painful. Uh, and I couldn't figure out. So finally I had to go. I, I tried everything. I used my tree oil. I used black seed oil. I did all kinds of things uh, for extraction. Black cumin? Or Which one? Did you use black cumin? Oh yeah, black cumin seed. Yeah, yeah. I take it every day. Yeah. Uh, I tell a lot of people to... I found a few that actually... Uh, biodynamic have a better taste. So I, I have to. I, I'm studying now what are they doing to it yeah. because certain people are processing black seed oil uh, 
and it tastes horrible. Yeah. People don't want to eat it. They, I tell them mix it with manuka honey, and so yeah. actually get a lot more benefits to it too. Yeah, yeah. But then I found one that I'm drinking, and it's delicious. Really? Yeah, it's really good. So I tried all that, and I had to take a uh, antibiotic. I hadn't been on antibiotics in probably twenty something years, so of course it went right into my. Yeah, I took care of that. But you know, I saw already in, in a laboratory years ago with a big group of doctors that um, antibiotics create scars that are never healed. They're always there. So you know, I always try to stay away from that. And I learned so much from my uncle that even when I was a student at the Sorbonne, a few times I had run down, I was sick, and he would just uh, call in a holistic pharmacist and I would go there and I didn't know what I was taking, but always within a day I'd feel great no side effects and that's why I first started to say wow food is really powerful I wanted to ask you actually get into your mind when you are creating a plate of food how, what is that process like for you and how is that because I can imagine that shifts every time you learn something new and you're learning stuff all the time like I feel that I'm so fine-tuned with what I do now all these years trying to put food together um, I can almost, you know, I, my olfactory, my senses are helping me. You know, it's something that I think a lot about. My wife says I'm so sensitive now that I can feel um, a digestive issue before I even put something in my mouth. And she watches me. She's extremely healthy herself. She lost her dad young. Uh, he was in network, you know, a lot of smokers. And so she really took on uh, an incredible challenge to learn how to heal him and uh, she's maintained that interest and that growth. So we work together on, on a lot of these things. But uh, I remember Liam Nielsen was in the kitchen in my first restaurant. He, he came in the kitchen with his plate and he said to me, I don't know, this sauce, it tastes so complex and rich, but I know it's not. So t how do you do this? And I said to him that I realized that when I was there the first, you know, on the farm, that story of me pulling the peach down with my mother and she put my hand on another one, pushed it up, and when she took my hand down, she said, that's the peach to eat at seven years old. Growing up on a farm and learning the difference between something from only three days later, the values, better the taste, and then just constantly looking for those gifts from Mother Nature. So let's say you find one, and I always say I take that vegetable, fruit, whatever, for a very long walk. We have an intimate relationship. We do all kinds of testing together. All kinds of techniques and this and that until I find, wow, that's the best way. So when I put another one with it, which I've already done the same walk with, they're going to work together. And I told him that and he said, wow, it's so interesting. He had just finished Shindo's List and his response was, in my career, I felt like I'd been giving a large piece of wood and I'd been whittling it down and whittling it down until I got the simplest form and I found my power. Mm -hmm. And he said that Schindler's List was a real stretch for him. Mm -hmm. I never saw the movie, but you know, he's fascinating to have that kind of dialogue with someone. And then there was someone in, um, in the last week that we opened, because you're, I'm answering, and he is from England. Uh, I can't remember, he's an amazing actor. I think he's, uh, he's probably uh, running a school now, but he, was, he had a great career. As soon as he opened his mouth, I mean, you could feel the projection. And he was saying, this kitchen has love in it. This kitchen is full of love. Yeah. 
and that love is with Mother Nature. And he went on and on and on. This is not love with being a skilled cook and all my stuff. We stopped the service. <laughs> and, you know, I can feel it when some lady told us last week the same thing, you know, two nights ago. So science is so powerful. Um, but so is lifestyle and natural food, you know. Uh, it's just that people often can't make a quadrillion dollars on it. They can't copyright it. They can't own it. And a lot of times those investments are going to come from big business where that has to be their, um, you know, has to be their goal. So where are we today? Um, today is building, um, building from the silos of success, like I like to say, and break down the barriers and work together like we're going to do tonight. You know, uh, without having, I never had a health challenge, so people always say, well, were you sick? Is that way? No, I've always cooked that. And the good thing is that most of the people that have been f feeding are still coming since the mid-80s. Yeah, yeah. So they always knew, you know, they ha I have so much history about uh, food. I remember I pulled out a New York Times story. It was a pretty big paper story, and it said something about this chef is obsessed with digestion. And it was early 90s. <laughs> Who was talking about digestion, yeah, you know? Then, yeah. yeah, so I, I didn't think about it. I found it in my barn, yeah. and I was saying to my wife, "Look at that! I guess I guess I've been thinking about it for a long time, but I know I didn't. I know I didn't use the word digestion. Uh -huh. So the journalists used the word digestion, but somehow I must have been talking about how, you know, I don't want people to leave where they they're taxed by the food, by the combinations we put together. But you know, where I am today, now that we finish NHK, is to study the synergies from one culture to the next. If you're going to look at Ayurvedic. You have a hot body, you have a cool body. Um, you have many different things that are um, obvious. Where foods are, there's a correlation between that uh, physiology. And so we have to learn more about those independent physiologies. And then we have to understand that in the composition of a dish, um, there has to be some engineering uh, so the, 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 we have to quantify the dish to service um, this uh, physiology. And the challenge is that over the centuries of cuisine, community is constantly changing. Food was normally supporting those community changes. Uh, until recently, maybe 10, 15 years after the last war, uh, food wasn't the service so much. Food in this country took the back seat. Uh, food had to be uh, convenient, very fast, had to be mainstream. Um, and then the impression, the, the influence of the business machine and the government um, made people have error in judgment. Are we, are we affected that much by business? You know, do we feel that there are a lot of people, um, and that's what I call myths. And where do we get to the point where I, when Dr. Stieg, because this is something you would know a lot about, I think I said it uh, before, is when Dr. Stieg, neuro neurosurgeon from Cornell, he was very busy, I was very busy. Uh, we, we don't always talk together. I knew what he was going to talk about, so I prepared a menu. And I showed a whole bunch of oils, and I showed the turmeric oil sitting there. And, um, you know, uh, in only a few minutes, I talked about the soluble and soluble, blah, 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 and uh, peppermint oil. I was so good from here down, not from here up. Yeah, 
Acid reflux not a good idea to have peppermint oil. And I try to get people, you know, just can't jump on it because you're going to have, a, if you're having a problem uh, in this area, okay, that's going to help you. But if you're having another problem, this is going to be worse. So that's, you know, where do you get that information? And so eight or nine minutes into it, he was talking about how India has the lowest Alzheimer's disease in the world because you a lot of curry and curry is turmeric and turmeric is curcumin that goes into ghee. Well, that could be a building block. It could be a really healthy oil, high metabolism, maybe some grapeseed, maybe some avocado, maybe some olive oil. You make a, a turmeric, organic turmeric oil, and then you use it, uh, you do a little research, you use it. But it's so simple, you boil the pasta, you throw it in a bowl, you put a tablespoon of that, you roll it around, the smell is beautiful, the color, throw some pine nuts on there for yeah. protein and some good fats, a little bit of parsley, maybe a little bit more uh, of a good hard cheese, sheep yeah. or goat, for maybe some good lactic acid bacteria, and you're gonna sit down and say, wow, I'm a genius. Yeah. I made this in eight minutes, and I feel great. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have to go lay down and nap and watch TV to digest my meal. Yeah. So the building blocks is where I wanna go with the living pantry. Yeah. But we'll have, and you're definitely invited, we wanna try to close it up this year and have a mini podcast, a one page about you and ask you five questions. Yeah. And in those five questions are, what foods have you discovered are servicing with uncontroversial um, you know, evidence that you're healing people th through a certain food? My job is to integrate it and to make it taste good. Yeah. It's almost like a balance that you're trying to strike here. It's like, you know, you're trying to look after them. They have to trust you and yeah. you have to essentially reflect what you're uh, creating for them to suit their needs as well. Right. And they might not be aware of. Any smart chef knows that there's two ways that you grow as a chef. If you accept it, it's not about you and your jacket. Mother Nature challenges you almost every day because she's different every day. And your customer challenges you. If you accept those two, you will definitely evolve and grow. And those, uh, those who don't, sure, there's certain levels of creativity and they can have a prolific idea, but really their, their foundation is not going to be as solid as accepting the challenges of Mother Nature, learning how to adapt as she gives you different kinds of food. Maybe the weather changed, this changed, whatever. Fish has more fat, has less fat, you know, whatever. Um, this animal ate more grass and this animal had more uh, clover and alfalfa and a totally different immune system. Yeah, yeah. You know, clover and alfalfa with the high omega-3 can change an animal's life in two weeks. So this animal was drinking just grass, didn't have clover and alfalfa. So you have to be, you know, the more that you micro study Mother Nature, she teaches you. And the more that you accept your challenge, challenges from your customers, you, you're gonna, if you accept those challenges, Either it could be the most sophisticated palate, or it could be the most, you know, jaded palate from a point of almost not even being done, not even tasting things. But you can reach them, and those will build strengths. And then, then you start thinking about you know health from there, like. Uh, like we talked about the ascorbic acid, you know, that was a man that grew way too much basil and he made pesto and all his neighbors used to lock the door and pull the shades down. They had no more room to put any frozen pesto. So he bought a big coffin freezer, the, the, you know, the flat freezers, the chest freezer. And he told me that uh, he discovered with uh, buffered vitamin C that he could grade these ice cubes of pesto in February with snow at the door and the whole house smelled like basil. So I started doing that in 1989. <laughs> And then I went from not just in green chlorophyll, I put it in everything. 
and it seemed to obviously it was controlling bacteria which is eating sugar just like we like so then I started to realize wow flavors are growing they taste better and everything looks cleaner so we put it in almost everything we do. Do, do you have some non-negotiables that you consume on a daily or you try and get in your diet on a weekly basis after all you've learned through all the different cultures? I, uh, I fast a lot Okay. I haven't, I haven't eaten yet my last meal was in Chinatown last night. Uh, everything that we ate was alive uh, with a man from Taipei who is one of our best customers and it was from my bakers. And she is uh, diabetic so we made sure there was no sugar in anything. And it was that level of more sophisticated Chinese food. We had to be a little bit larger group because we were eating giant crabs from Australia and different things like this. Scallops were just open. Everything was super live fresh. And um, they were so happy. And you know she was monitoring herself, you know. So like, like we do that, yeah. we we do that. We have to we have to learn what what is the reaction of our exactly. foods. Yeah, That's yeah. why I love those constant glucose monitors. Totally, because I, I have yeah. patients that will have oats, for example. Oats is perfectly healthy for some people, but for certain patients, yeah. shoots their well, sugar that's, right that's up. what we're learning. You know, like certain people, they can have like uh, even green tea, yeah. uh, the tain. Uh, can create uh, blood pressure issues, you know, or the caffeine uh, at a certain temperature of water, though, if you bring it really low, the lower the water with green tea, uh, the lower the caffeine. You can get almost to no caffeine if you're using cold water. We learned this in laboratories in, in uh, Japan. So you have all the benefits, tying the amino acids, you have all these different yeah. things. Yeah, and as you raise it, and, and right. you know, it's quite relaxing. It right. can help with blood You have a lot of GABA. People, yeah. So yeah. you have GABA there. Mm. And so you have, you have many uh, areas that are going to calm, calm you down. So, you know, for me, it's basically I love to fast. Mm. Uh, if I felt that I've eaten food that uh, my physiology struggles with for digestion, or I don't feel the energy that I feel like I should have, I always have too much energy anyways, but I feel, okay, I'm going to fast. Mm. And I do take certain enzymes. Okay. Uh, I work with different herbalists. Uh, one guy, he's almost 80 years old, and you would think he's 50. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I unplugged a long time ago. <laughs> but he has a whole bunch of PhDs, and he's got about 75 acres. And I grew up with a 100-acre uh, woman uh, farm in uh, Connecticut, who had actually two PhDs from Oxford, wow. and she never used them. Really? 1925, she started an herb farm. Oh, wow. She wrote 50-something books. And the reason I brought it up is because right now, she died about 20 years ago. She was married to a younger man, a professor, to secure the estate. And then he's passed. Now it's, uh, it's been taken over by an exec exec executor. And I, she somehow put my no name in there that I was her spiritual brother. She was about 50 years older than me. Yeah. <laughs> and um, anyway, so all her intellectual knowledge is also for sale and they think I should right. buy it and I really want to do it because yeah. you know in 1970s she had 20 or 30 red basils and probably 40 something green basils and she had the silver garden this garden that garden yeah. she had traveled all over the world uh, she proved that she could grow almost anything like Elliot Coleman up in Maine have you ever heard of him no, no, Elliot no. Coleman wow, amazing guy yeah. uh, extended growing scene in Maine four months. He, he's a, a genius. Mm. And he says, I'm not a farmer, I grew up in New Jersey. But he's 
best form. I used to buy my Chateaunay cards from him on the first boulet when he was in Vermont, and customers would come in, and you'd see a little orange on a plate, and they would say, could you tell us what that was? Yeah. We were all like arguing, debating. Is it squash, pumpkin, carrot? I said, it's carrot. Well, it has an appellation on it. It's okay. the only carrot that has an appellation. Oh, right, okay. One of the few vegetables, uh -huh. Chateaunay. And um, then they would come back after and say, okay, we, we, we understand, but what were the spices? Yeah. And you tell them, we didn't put any spices yeah. in. We just glaze the carrots, get the glucose up, the water's coming out. You see the shine on the carrot, so it gets soft. This is sugar, it's caramelizing. It's that blonde caramel now. So we know about how much water to put in, and then we simmer it until we know we have enough water mass in the carrots. Then we blend that, we get a beautiful silky, we don't do anything, salt and pepper. And they, they wouldn't believe it. And they would say, well, I thought you were supposed to boil it. And then we put it in a blender with heavy cream and butter and nutmeg and allspice and all these things. I said, yeah, that's, a, that's one way to do it. But you know, that's, not, that's not the way you want it. Well, this is the thing. Is that healthy eating is about letting the great quality ingredients speak for themselves. The potato fingling, we put it on in 87, by 1990, when we give the dessert menu to customers, like I think I said that to Mark, it's just to make people realize, so many of the waiters would say to me, Chef, they don't want dessert, but they want another bowl of that fingling potato. <laughs> and then when you go to Peru and you see what they're doing with yeah. the potatoes, you eat a potato down there, and it's like, wow, yeah. I just have to go sit down and think for a while. I, I thought I knew what a potato was. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're learning from the Indians. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, with do cause we've done things to food where we've had to feed a huge population. I'm reading a book right now, you should read it, it's mm -hmm. called Eat Like a Fish. Eat like a fish. Yeah, it's this guy who is a fish man, had a really rough life as a youth from British Columbia. Um, he's fished everywhere, uh, he dropped out of high school, but he's kelp farming now. And his statistics are so interesting. Uh, kelp because, you know, we were in Hokkaido. We did a lot of studies in Hokkaido. You saw a little bit in NHK. Yeah. We were with them for a week. We could talk about that till yeah, next yeah. weekend. But the, the kelp removes a multiple more of carbon dioxide out of the climate than trees do. It also reduces nitrogen in the ocean. It also is a great area for fish to repopulate within the kelp because fishmen can't go in there. So he's got... 2,000 ocean acre. I'm only in like chapter seven. I gotta, I gotta get moving and figure out where he's gone with this. But the beginning was so amazing. You know, it, was, it was such a scintillating int introduction to the future where 2055, we will have to produce as much food as we've ever produced to feed the population in 2055. So scary. Seems crazy, yeah. how could that be? Yeah, yeah. But many people have told me that's probably true. We've reduced the pure water down by 60, 70%. Seems like it's gonna have some real challenges. One thing I learned from Centennials, because we studied the Blue Zone now, not just in Japan, but most Centennials will run a journal and uh, they'll start with uh, their day with gratitude. Yes. They will continue with empathy mm -hmm. and they will know that they have to service someone. It could be a smile. Mm -hmm. It could make a face that looks like they're suffering from the load of life, just have a smile for a minute. So those I've seen, and I told one doctor not long ago, he's a dean, 
And he said, David, if gratitude was a supplement, it would be a trillion dollar business in two weeks. <laughs> I said, wow, you really think so? Yes. <laughs> and we were, you know, we were at the um, Japanese embassy that had given me this, uh, this uh, Roshoko Award. Yeah. yeah, and I was the first one outside of Japan. What, what does the Roshoko mean again? It's the, it's the food, the evolution of food. Their 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 culture food food culture for Japan, and um, so uh, there were a lot of photographers there, and uh, because they had never done that, and Japan is reaching out not just in food but in many other, they feel that there is pressure to identify uh, as China is now reaching out, and a lot of things are Japanese, so they feel that you know they want to make sure that there isn't an identity crisis, but uh, it's a really an interesting program they've. They've initiated about 10 years ago. They have a lot of support, government, educators, uh, businesses. And uh, we talked to the, one of the chairmen of a major company, trillion dollar company. And uh, my wife was saying, wow, look at him, he's so impeccably dressed. And when he came to us, because he was being brought to us by someone we knew, and we had a Japanese woman with us. And, and my wife and I were like, so I wonder what we're gonna talk about now. We were talking about, you know, um, gratitude and things like this, and just enjoying food. And he started talking for a minute. He said, yes, David, you know, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that we do, us Japanese, before we open our eyes, we thank for air. And then we thank for light. And then we thank for water. This we do every morning. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> He's a businessman at the, at, you know, uh, yeah. under the mega, uh, lifestyle yeah. and this is so beautiful but in uh, the time that we spent I learned a lot about these things and uh, how they come uh, cortisol adrenal just breathing which we do a lot as well you know like that's why I love when Andrew I was going to introduce which is pretty much global now it's five seven eight uh, you know we'll get people that we know have blood pressure based on cortisol, not blood pressure from plaque or calcium or other issues, but just cortisol. And it could be because they just think too much or they're busy and they, they have the kind of minds that are running all the time. So we've learned that that's a, that can stimulate blood pressure. But if you take that person, and I'm one of them, uh, and breathe just uh, six or seven minutes, you can drop blood pressure down 30 points. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about doing a, uh, a chef event here in this space, in this room that we're in right now, because you see the chef and people are sat around the table, the simple process, the simple um, uh, event of sitting around a table with people, not looking at your phone, mm. calms everyone down. Well, yeah, they, exactly. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, you know, their blue light and just the constant uh, habits that we're, we're running to, and th these are great services to our lifestyle, but they're also, you know, they're a double-edged sword. And when Dr. C comes from Harvard, he's uh, helping astronauts sleep and soldiers in combat sleep, he's a sleep specialist. Uh, I look at the people, and they, they look like they want to run home and change their life, but then they realize there's a six-course menu, and it's like, should I stay or should I go? It sounds like David Burns' song, you know? And so we, <laughs> we look at these guys, and, and he has given them such clarity and statistics that they, they feel, wow, I have a takeaway. 
And that's what we're doing. You know, last doctor that came in, uh, brilliant, but he ha more than half was pointing where all the problems are. And my issue was, you know, people need takeaway, they need solutions. You know, maybe we could put some people on there that they can talk to on the end of the screen, some websites. People want to be active too. They want to engage in changing things. They want to take away when they hit the sidewalk. And he said, ah, that's great. Um, I want to write a book called Solutions. He's written like 15 books. And, and I think he's going to do it. Great. Or another doctor that we were talking to the week before about how certain people have reactions to certain kind of foods while other people don't. Caffeine would be one. So how do you metabolize caffeine? And can you still enjoy caffeine if you can't metabolize it? So, yeah, we've learned that there's foods that can first nurture the ecosystem. Can we re-stabilize an ecosystem that started with a handicap? I don't know. But I know that I did, um, I cooked for uh, the China study, you know, a few times, those folks. And uh, there was a woman that used to come down from Rochester that won the marathon, doctor. And, uh, you know, she would focus on, was, of course, children. And... Uh, because you know, my story you can understand. And it um, was interesting because we studied in Kyoto bacteria, microbiome, the natural birth versus sea cesarean. And I told her, actually my uncle was always telling me that, because you know, it's illegal in France, you have to have a real cause. It's not a cosmetic, uh, cosmetically it's not available to you. So actually many countries. Um, so uh, I told this lady at one of my projects called Upstairs, where it was a tiny little room. I'm cooking on French toast, and my Japanese uh, chef is with me, who was my age, a little bit older, who was the first one to get a four-star review in the New York Times 33 years ago, a real master chef. And we had a ball, because we could talk to people. We never talked to them. And uh, I was telling her what I had just learned, and she made me feel that I, w I didn't understand any of what they told me, and that that just is not correct. And I went home and told my wife, wow, I'm going to have to study this more. So on the next trip to Japan, maybe I can learn more about the, the natural birth of C. cesarean. Next year she comes back. And uh, I don't know if I told this on, on Marx, but she came back and uh, she was looking for me because we had four corners, four restaurants. And she found me and said, wow, I have uh, 20,000 babies in our database and we see a direct uh, synergy to immune uh, weaknesses from C. cesarean versus natural birth, natural uh, canal birth. And um, then uh, I went to cook up in Rochester for the, I can't remember the doctors from the China study. Uh, T. T. Campbell? Campbell's. Campbell's. Yeah. Campbell's. Yeah. Right. So uh, she was there mm -hmm. and she introduced me to her husband and she introduced <laughs> me in front of the other people. They were all um, uh, gastrologists. And, you know, um, it was fascinating, but when she, this years ago, when she told me that I was correct, I went home and told my wife that night, I said, well, I don't know if you should be happy or more upset, because I can't believe a cook told this, like, what is going on? I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. So at that point, it was right within that year, I decided we're gonna start the Chef and Doctor, Doctor series, because we have to get people to understand, uh, you know, and, like I said earlier, a lot of them said well, I had 24 hours of nutrition, but I don't know what to talk about because we, you know, we basically were trained, most of them in the 70s. Antibiotics were so you know, powerful and everything else, and the eye was on science. 
And you know, we, we also know that doctors in general die uh, at three to six percent younger than their uh, sex uh, yeah. normal. Is this the same across all healthcare staff in the UK as well? You too? Yeah. Well, so that's, I mean, obviously they, they want to heal people. They probably don't uh, take care of their schedule of eating. They're not eating properly. They probably have no circadian rhythm. Uh, the list yeah. goes on. It's one of the things I, I remember I wrote my, my first book about how we, we are not the pillars of health to look up to. But um, I, I'm fascinated by this doctor series and uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time. No, so no, it's just that your question was very interesting in terms of uh, well, there are other cultures where we see a movement pretty much. Yeah. Um, Having spent time with uh, these French baker, you know, going back to 1650, uh, all, only always organic, uh, I learned a lot from them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I learned so much about uh, how, not just the ingredient, but how we present the food, how we execute the food. For instance, if you take bread and you freeze it, and then you thaw it properly, and with a little bit of toasting, you reduce the glycemic index. So if you take fried rice and keep it two days old before you cook it, you reduce glycemic index. So I started reading all that and I read that there's one young Chinese chef, he says, yeah, if you can't do that, freeze it for at least two or three hours and you reduce it. So it's the the uh, carbohydrates. Yeah, you're, you're forming resistant starch molecules right, that make right. it, uh, they blunt the glycemic. Well, they explode as well, so the water is, you know, a whole protein transition, everything's happening, yeah. sugars. I mean, that's fascinating, because yeah. in China they were probably always using several day old rice, right? <laughs> yeah. Now they're in a rush, so they're using fresh rice. <laughs> yeah. And people, maybe they put their bread outside in the winter time, who, who knows? But yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, there's so much to learn. But it's also fascinating how many doctors have been coming in now who are sitting there and saying things like, oh, I didn't know you'd do that. That's how you cook the mushrooms or, or you know, you give them different things to taste and they say, oh, I thought I can do, I can do that. Then they come back and they're doing it and they're telling you, you know, I do it better than you know. So, you know, that's when it works. But like this book will be available to them. And what I like about, I looked at it really fast because I haven't had time, but what I like about it is, um, you know, you're getting into some, you're articulating exactly what they hear everybody's talking about. And th this is, you, know, you got into sleep, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, every section uh, has got a dietary section, but also a lifestyle section as to support that particular function. So for uh, immune health, you know, I'll talk about sleep for, um, I don't know what chapter that is, but... Um, uh, it, you know, I, I dissect what things you should be eating to support certain things, but the final chapter brings it all together. Right. Um, and right. that's what I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of. Oh, the final chapter? Yeah, the final chapter in the front section. Oh. It's uh, the oh, principles the introduction of, to yeah. I mean, you, you're gonna the performance of food, right? Exactly, yeah. You're gonna fight, I'm gonna essentially talk about the final chapter um, tonight for tonight's thing. Um, but. Eating a limb for ultimate health. This is something to support every aspect of your um, 
uh, your well-being. And then I, I, I use these sort of scientific, these healthy eating principles and what concepts are supporting those. So nutrigenomics, chrononutrition, that's fasting, uh, phytochemicals, inflammation balance, all these different things that come into this. And this is, when I create a, a recipe, I'm thinking about, okay, where's the fiber? Where's the quality fat? Where's the color? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Because one doctor was brilliant one time, came back again, and uh, she impressed me so much, but the second time it was, eat a rainbow of color. Mm -hmm. And I went home and told my wife, you know, either we're learning too much or they're not articulating. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, you talk to the guest who come in regularly and they say, you know, we already know we should be eating a rainbow of color. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. What do we do when we go home, yeah, eat a yeah. rainbow of color? Okay, we already do that now. Yeah. But if you don't have the proper fats, yeah. carbohydrates, complex yeah. carbohydrates, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and what is fiber? Exactly. What kind of fiber? Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. The, the language is not clear. Mm -hmm. And everybody hears the, the new thing is pretty much what everybody's saying. I, yeah. They recirculate so much material. Yeah, yeah. But like, what do, you, what, do, what do I do as a consumer? Exactly, know? which is why I chose to zoom in into different topics and go through what the literature says about those individual topics and then zoom out and right, then look at the, right. the ultimate principle. So when I'm thinking about, okay, how do you build your plate? You know, you're getting all these principles in. And then you, if you complement that with a lifestyle, then you're creating a, particularly a, a, a medicinal package, right. um, which is, yeah. Right, do you get into soluble and insoluble fiber in the book? I go into hundreds of different types of fibers. So insoluble and soluble is, is great, um, but you know. Well, it's, it's just the beginning for them to understand. Just a, you know, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is great. This is where I opened up to. Good, I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, oh, finally. Yeah. <laughs> when when uh, Olivia had given it to me. I really hope you enjoyed hearing from Chef Boulet. We literally talked for two hours plus, so I had to edit a lot down. But I imagine doing a lot more with Chef Boulet in the future. We did a wonderful Chef and Doctor series event whilst I was over there in New York. You can find out more about that on Chef Boulet's websites. That's davidboulet.com and boulet-at-home.com as well. If you're visiting New York City, definitely check out the restaurant. It's quite literally an experience. It really does feel like a homely environment. There's copper pans everywhere. It's an open kitchen. And the at-home section as well is particularly special where you don't get a choice about the menu. You just get given whatever you're given and it really does feel like you're stepping into someone's house. And whilst you're in the States, of course, don't forget to order a copy of my new book out there in the States, Eat to Be Illness, which is available now all over America, the links of which are down below. And if you found this information useful, give us a five-star rating. You can find more information at thedoctorskitchen.com. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes, content, and much more to help you live the healthiest, happiest life. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.